This is the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we're speaking for the first time with Robert Moriarty. He's a decorated Vietnam veteran who flew over 800 missions and I believe was the youngest naval aviator in Vietnam. He is also a successful investor, author, founder of 321gold.com, as well as 321energy.com. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. You have a very interesting site. Thanks. I just wanted to mention in the beginning, when I was much younger, uh, an undergraduate student some 15 years ago or more, I was slowly coming to the realization that much of the narratives we were taught in school by the media, by the government, and repeated by our closest circle of family, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances, uh, that a lot of these narratives were false. So I began to seek out better sources of information, and I ended up purchasing thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books on Amazon and compiling hundreds and hundreds of bookmarks of internet websites. Uh, your website, 321gold, was one of those. And I believe, I noted at the bottom of your page, it, it has been visited by hundreds of millions of people, I think. And I find it amusing that many years later, I ended up starting this podcast and now get to speak with you. And so, anyways, my, my first question is related to one of the core themes of this podcast, which is empire. And it's one of the core themes because I feel that in history, one of the principal driving forces of international affairs is empire, whether it's, you know, at the current moment, it happens to be the American empire. I mean, if we were in the days of the British empire, I'd be talking about the British empire or the Spanish. And so... You are a Vietnam veteran, and so you've experienced a lot. You've fought for the empire. Can you give us your thoughts on the empire and whether perhaps I'm wrong in giving so much weight to it? Uh, no, I don't think you're wrong, but let me point something out. Uh, I, I went to China about 10 years ago on a property tour, and uh, we had a big dinner a big formal dinner, it's quite impressive, with the officials from the local community and the company and, and some newsletter writers. And one of the things that they expect you to do is, is to drink a lot, to smoke cigarettes, and to make a toast. And, and I was kind of at a loss for toast, and then I started realizing uh, and and it, 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 you just brought it up, a very important thing. Every, every country, by and large, gets a century. The, the Dutch had the uh, 15th century. The Spanish had the 16th century. The French had 17th century. The British had the 18th century. Uh, the United States had the 20th century. And, and there's this cycle that goes around that sometimes you're on top and sometimes you're on bottom. But the key to it is that empires start, they have a high point, and then they have a rapid decline. It, it's extremely important to understand the world is go undergoing a sea change, and the United States empire is in a rapid state of decline. And, and, Americans write about it and talk about, okay, this is what we need to do to maintain the empire. But in fact, you know, everybody gets a century, everybody gets a world reserve currency for about 90 years, and then somebody else takes over. It's part of the natural order of things that empires begin, they live, 
and they die. And regarding the American empire, uh, what would you say are some signs? You know, we can look back. Uh, a lot of people have looked at Rome for signs. We see uh, decline in culture. In your books, you write about military adventurism. And, you know, America hasn't won many wars in, in, in decades. Uh, you know, I've interviewed Johann Galtung, the esteemed um, peace uh, researcher who predicted the American empire would decline in 2020. Others like Alfred McCoy, uh, say 2030, uh, as well as uh, I think Michael Clare and, and other academics. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on this d decline? Will it be a slow burn like some other empires? And what are some other signs? Well, let's go back to Vietnam. And I'm going to turn, turn the interview around a little bit. I'm going to ask you a question. In very simple terms, what should the only purpose of war be what should war accomplish peace the only legitimate purpose of war and i am you know i want everybody to absolutely understand this uh i'm not a peacenik i'm a warrior but i am totally against war the only purpose of war should be to accomplish peace now, unfortunately, and I learned this when I was in Vietnam because I was there for almost two years, the United States and the military-industrial complex, the purpose of war in the United States today is more war. And that tends to be incredibly self-defeating because, uh, I, I mean, even the, even the Chinese and the, and the North Vietnamese back in the late 60s, called the United States the Paper Tiger. And, and at the time, I thought, that's absurd. You know, we can send over 27 B-52s on, on an airstrike. We can bomb 300 meters by five miles. I mean, that's power. But power has to be used appropriately. And, and we were fighting to keep people from being independent. I, I've been back to Vietnam twice since I left. I left in 1970, and in the last 10 years, I've visited two mining projects in Vietnam. They are run by a communist government. We were told communist governments are bad, but the people are happy. They're prosperous. Uh, there is no prostitution like there was then. Uh, God, I mean, the only danger about Vietnam is riding around on a motorcycle. Those people are very dangerous. But it, it's a wonderful country, and they're wonderful people. So we fought a war, spent billions of dollars, and accomplished absolutely nothing. That was the beginning of the end for the American empire. Every empire ends when it gets involved in military adventurism. It happened to the British, it happened to the French, it happened to the Spanish, it happened to the Russians, and it's going to happen to the United States. We have bankrupted ourselves, and, and I'll be real candid, I could talk to a hundred Americans, and not a single one of them could explain to me what we stand to gain in Afghanistan, and we've been there for 18 years. And... Yeah, I mean, you're right. And um, seeing the way that uh, empires go in history, 
And, you know, given the history of the Cold War, I'm just looking at where all this might lead to or where this might end. You know, we have uh, nuclear weapons uh, now. And do you think uh, our world leaders are crazy enough to stumble into thermonuclear war? Because we've seen them use unnecessarily um, nukes in Japan. Um, and what are your thoughts if it could get that bad? Okay. If an unfriendly state <clears throat> fired one EMP weapon 300 miles over Kansas, it would kill 90% of Americans in a year, and the war would be over in an instant. When an unfriendly power, and that can be any unfriendly power, has that kind of potential why would you want to be challenging people on a constant basis? Uh, I, I see the United States literally committing suicide. Uh, it, it, it scares me the extent to which Trump threatens China, Trump threatens Iran, Trump threatens Russia. For what? I mean, what exactly, what threat are they to the United States? And the answer is absolutely nothing. That, you know, that was my next question. Your thoughts on the rise of China and, and Russia. And, you know, if we read the reports lately, we see them slowly taking over influence around the world, making economic deals, uh, arms deals as they advance slowly in, into some of America's previous playgrounds, such as the Middle East, uh, Africa and Latin America with infrastructure deals, energy, and so on. And, I mean, as you mentioned, do we really, I mean, maybe down the line as China and Russia get, uh, they grow in economic terms and military terms, do you see at some point they might become a threat? Well, when you move into a neighborhood, do you resent your neighbors becoming rich and powerful, or do you try to get along with them? Try to get along, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, if you've got any sense, you do. I, I don't see China as the enemy. I don't see Russia as the enemy. I certainly do not see Iran as the enemy. Uh, you've got to look at it and say, you know, are we truly being threatened? Now, China is interesting because for 18 out of the last 20 centuries, China and India have represented the world's greatest GDP. Is it? even remotely possible to keep China down? And the answer is, of course not. The Chinese are amazing people. They're amazingly talented. They're amazingly hardworking people. Uh, they're just good people. Uh, do they have geopolitical interests that they're trying to maintain? Yeah, of course they do. But every country has interests. If you remember what Benjamin Disraeli said in, in the 1850s, I believe it was, uh, England has no permanent friends and England has no permanent enemies. England only has permanent interests. There is natural conflict between countries. And I don't mean conflict in terms of, of warfare. I mean conflict in terms of, of economic advantage. Uh, Mexico and China are not Mexico and China. Mexico and Canada have different 
forms of economic policies in the United States do. So the United States says, well, Canada, gee, you're subsidizing milk production, and we don't like that. That is a natural conflict, and it's one of those conflicts that true leaders will sit down with the Canadians, and the Canadians sit down with the Americans and say, okay, well, here's what we need, and here's what our problems are, and here, here's how we think we could solve this. What you don't do it, it's dynamite your neighbor's home in the middle of the night. Now, why the United States would threaten Russia is is totally beyond me. Uh, I, I, I was in combat from July of 1968 till March of 1970. I flew, I think, 834 missions total. That was about 1,150 hours of, of first pilot and command time and fixed-wing aircraft. I, I've got a pretty good basic understanding of, of conflict. I can look at somebody, I can talk to somebody, and give you a pretty good idea of how they would react in combat. I, I would not mess with Putin, period. Okay, If Putin wants to be a badass, he is a true badass. And that doesn't mean he's a bad person. Uh, I look at Putin as serving the interests of Russia. And, and personally, I don't see any, anything wrong with that. I wish Trump would serve the interests of the United States rather than the interests of Israel. And he serves Israel first and the United States second. And that's very dangerous. And one more question on war and, and military before I ask you about the economy. One thing you mentioned briefly in The Art of Peace was the use of uh, false flag operations. And there's all manner of staged uh, attacks or false flags. And you mentioned the Gulf of Tonkin as a type of false flag. And I've actually, you know, we've had the documents declassified now. So we know for a fact that, you know, nothing happened that day, but it was used uh, as a pretext to start the war, and I've used that primary source material uh, in my university classes when I taught on, on this subject. So people, I mean, we have the primary source documents, and so we can go straight to that. And you know, it's funny how often the U.S. will talk about false flag operations of other countries, but as soon as you talk about U.S. false flags, you know, you're some crazy conspiracy theorist. I taught world history with an American textbook and noted um, the the descriptions of. You know, the German false flags during World War II, and sometimes they didn't even talk about those, or they would mention uh, the Japanese when they dressed up as Chinese uh, and attacked uh, their own railroad, uh, but never from the U.S. So could you just tell us your thoughts a bit about false flag operations? Because I, I think they're also a very, they're very effective. Um, and how, how, how important do you think they are and which other ones are important to note? I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to see just how good your history is. When did the Gulf Tonkin incident take place? Uh, wasn't that like August 4th, 1964? Uh, I'm not sure it's 
course, but it, it was the first week of August. That's very good because you did get that right. Now, I actually turned 18 in September of 1964. I graduated from high school in May of 1964. So the Gulf of Tonkin incident was near and dear to my heart. Because, you know, I, I was prime age for, for being a draftee. Now, I, I would highly encourage everyone that listens to this to go to Google and read the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. And when you read it, you go, my God, were these people insane? Were, were they even sober when they passed that? That's crazy. Now, let me explain the Gulf Tonkin incident for those people who are not historians and don't know it. I think it was Op Plan 98 or Op Plan 15. I, I, I can't remember specifically, but the CIA equipped some South Vietnamese Navy PT boats and financed them and armed them and sent them up to attack a North Vietnamese PT boat squadron. The Turner Joy and the Maddox were U.S. destroyers that were sent to safeguard the PT boats. So if if you're actually familiar, and, and, and this information has been available for 40 years, if you're actually familiar with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, this was an armed attack on an independent country that had not committed aggression against the United States or South Vietnam, and it was run by the CIA. Uh, if you go back to it, you can go all the way back to 1948 when the CIA was created. The, the CIA is behind most of this stuff. The CIA has become uh, a military power, a political power, an economic power of its own. And, and it's very scary. But uh, the Gulf Tonkin incident was a false flag. Johnson wanted an excuse to attack North Vietnam. Uh, and, and he runs around screaming, we've been attacked. Well, there appears to have been an attack on one night, but on the next night, there clearly was not a, an attack, and, and it was a false flag. Now, you mentioned something earlier. You hit on something that's very important. You're young enough that you've grown up pretty much with the Internet because it's been around for 20 or 25 years. I, I, of course, I mean, computers were extremely unusual when I was a kid. And in fact, I remember when there was no television. What has happened, and this is absolutely vital for everybody to understand, that throughout history, the elite have controlled the narrative. And they've told the peasants, the bourgeoisie, as it be, how to think, how to vote, and how to act. When the internet came along, all of a sudden it gave guys like you and me a voice. And if enough people want to listen to you and enough people want to listen to me, uh, they can hear an alternative point of view. So it used to be, you know, Kennedy gets killed and it took years to realize, hey, wait a minute, it couldn't possibly have happened the way the government say. And and 
Martin Luther King was killed, and it takes years to find out that that uh, James Earl Ray was a patsy. Uh, Gulf Tonkin incident, perfect example. Now they have a, a false flag operation, and 15 minutes later, half the internet is out there showing that it couldn't possibly take place. The control of the narrative has changed. And what that means is there's going to be a lot more power to ordinary people. And then the elite need to realize they're losing control. And that's inevitable because the flow of information has changed. And what you're seeing is the elite are fighting tooth and nail to keep ordinary people from learning what's really going on. You know, many listeners will already understand that much of the media is junk, but I'm still astonished to meet people who buy in to these official narratives. You know, this podcast is growing slowly and we've gotten largely positive reviews, but I always read a few small handful, uh, very negative reviews that call, call me Russian propaganda, conspiracy theory, which I take is you know as an insult, uh, and that our guests are fringe, not jobs, which is insane because I often interview former diplomats and best-selling authors and people such as yourself. So, um, you know, how would you break down uh, the the media propaganda? Because as you as you've said, and one fear that I have now is they've let the internet be open for a while and now they it seems they've started to to censor it and and start turning the screws and closing closing down and so how do you see the propaganda today well uh here's what's interesting and there's something unique about me that you may have never had another guest uh with the same kind of experience we are taught that governments are powerful We are taught that governments are led by wise people who have lots of information and and they're out to help us. As you grow older, you find out, well, gee, there may be some flaws to that. If anybody spent 20 months in combat in Vietnam, they would not have any belief in the power of government. we we took the same hill half a dozen times, and I was there long enough that I thought, you know, I've been here before. I've taken this hill before. And we would go out, and we would lose three or four helicopters, and we'd have a couple dozen guys die, and they would run around uh, shooting people and 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 looking around, and then we'd pull out. And we'd go back in a month later and do exactly the same thing. I mean, I, I don't see how any rational person could look at Afghanistan and, and conclude it's anything other than a total and absolute clusterfuck. We have nothing to gain. We attacked a country that had not threatened us and was no damage to us. And it, it's like Br'er Rabbit uh, and, and the Briar Patch. You know, once you stick your hand in there, you're stuck forever. We don't have leaders in the United States with the maturity or the judgment or the courage to say, gee, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. 
Uh, Libya literally today has a tank battle going on between one faction and another faction, and the faction with the biggest guns is led by an American. And, and I'm sitting here saying, who on earth thought Libya was a victory for anybody? And, and I, I just cannot conclude how anybody thought that was a really good idea. And we have turned Libya into a place you can go downtown and you can buy a slave. Now, that's not progress, folks. So that's decline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we're slowly running out of time. And I want to get to the topic of the economy. Uh, and you write a lot about uh, the economy. I, in fact, I just finished reading th- uh, the third book uh, of yours. And your books on investing are very short uh, and on the economy are very short, very affordable, uh, only a couple of bucks. And they offer so much no-nonsense, practical, actionable intelligence. And I recommend people go and get them. You write in one of your books that we have an absolutely insane level of debt and that in the end you cite Professor Lawrence Kotlikov, you know, that the U.S. owes over $200 trillion, uh, in debt and that ultimately all debt gets paid either by the lender or borrower. So could you give us your view on the U.S. and in general the global economy and what you see are the greatest uh, dangers? Well, uh, strange enough, you you just hit on it right there. There's a very important concept that I do not see other people writing about, but it's important for, for investors. Actually, it's important for everybody to understand. If you loan me 50 bucks and you pay it back, uh, or I pay it back, then I paid the $50. If I don't pay you back, then you've paid the $50. Uh, we have a level of government or level of debt in the world, something substantially higher than 250 trillion globally that mathematically cannot be paid. Now, if something mathematically cannot be paid, it will not be paid. And it's actually the source of most of the conflict in the world today. Uh, It's conflict between the haves and the have-nots. I I look at it, and I'm not sure that I'm correct, but I'm pretty sure that I'm correct. Uh, it, It goes back to money being a variable rather than being a standard. Uh, I'm presuming you're economically literate. If I ask you how many times between noon today and noon tomorrow will the value of the dollar on the commodities exchange uh, trade, how many times will it change value in a 24-hour period? Countless, I mean. Uh, exactly. A thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. But if the length of a meter changed ten thousand times in a day or the weight of a gram changed ten thousand times in a day, you, you just simply couldn't have an economy, couldn't do anything. When we went off the gold standard, we, we lost the ability to have something that was very important is that to have money that has value 
and money that serves as a true measure. Now, all of the conflict in Sudan today, in Libya today, in Paris with the yellow vests, uh, in Brussels, in Canada, in England, uh, literally goes back to confusion in the financial markets about what is real and what's not real and what's value. Uh, it, in all of recorded history, we have never had negative interest rates because if you look at the definition of interest, you just simply cannot have a negative rate. It cannot be wiser for me to loan money to you than to sit on it under my mattress. And the concept of I loan you $1,000 and you pay me $990 a year later uh, is, is, is totally impossible. It's just, it doesn't work mathematically. Uh, that's a long explanation of saying something simple. We have discontinuity in the financial markets. We need to reset we need to go back to economics 101. We need to have governments not spending beyond their means, not promising things to get votes. Uh, we, we need to live within our means. And that sounds simple. But at the end of the day, that's going to be the only solution. You cannot have governments spend more money than they can possibly raise. It's not possible. You mentioned the yellow vests, and I mean, you're there in France, so I guess you're close to some of that action. Uh, and we see around the world this rise of anti-establishment populist movements from the left uh, and the right. And uh, as, as you mentioned, it's happening all around the place. You know, I'm a Mexican citizen. You can see it in Mexico. We saw Occupy Wall Street in the U.S., and you know, it'll it'll come again, something like it. We see it all over Europe now. And you see, do you feel this might build like some sort of crescendo? in all of these countries, and then how might it end? Well, we're going to have a crash, okay? And in my latest book, and it's really funny because I'm going to either look really smart or really stupid, I'd say we're going to have the Great Reset, and the Great Reset is going to come this year. If all you do is look at what the U.S. stock market did in December, uh, it tumbled. But it didn't even tumble 20%. I think the worst it was down was 19%. The Fed panicked, okay, and threw money at the market, and, and the stock market has recovered. But what the Fed is doing is got everybody sitting down at a poker table playing high-stakes poker, and they're using monopoly money. When people realize they're playing high-stakes poker with monopoly money, they're going to throw their hands up and say, I don't want to play because there's no way I can win. All of the conflicts, the revolutions, the yellow vest, Brussels, Sudan, Libya, uh, all of that goes back to uh, economic instability. And unfortunately, we're going to have to go through the Force 15 hurricane. Uh, to see what comes out the other side. But the, the, good, the good side to it is that we know things are going to improve. We just have to go through a bad phase first. And just, uh, I believe, today or yesterday, famed uh, uh, investor Ray Dalio came out saying that the American dream is dead 
and that he's all for capitalism, but it needs to be reformed. Meanwhile, many analysts see a wave of socialism and Marxism hitting America in the 2020 elections. And if Trump is reelected, I'm sure uh, beyond that. What are your thoughts uh, on that and the economic uh, inequality and political divisions we're witnessing in the U.S.? Well, if you can imagine going to a party, and you would have seen this in the 60s and 70s, where everybody's on LSD, that's the state of the United States today. I mean, the media is beyond a joke. It's just simply patently absurd. Everything is political. The government has been bought and paid for. There's total corruption. Uh, newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and uh, the Washington Post and New York Times, uh, Pravda put out more truth than they do today. And it's into empire. It's the kind of stupidity that you get at the end of empire, and it's a cycle and it's something that you've got to go through. I'm not particularly concerned because, you know, if you want to understand the United States, go read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. We're doing the same thing. I can't quite figure out whether Trump is Nero or whether he's Caligula, but he's one or the other. Mm-hmm. And other uh, guests we've had on, we had a cultural historian, Morris Berman, who's said uh, similar and has said that Trump uh, is helping to accelerate the fall uh, of the empire. And, you know, I'm, I'm neither for, I just kind of observe these events and I'm neither, f- when Trump does something good, I applaud. When he does something bad, I complain. Um, and I wanted to ask you about gold. You know, how important is gold for the individual and for governments? We see some dumb Western governments selling their gold, like uh, England and Canada, and others like Venezuela getting their gold stolen by England and other countries in the East, such as Russia, China, I believe Turkey and Kazakhstan buying gold like crazy. So what are your thoughts on gold? Well, uh, the interesting thing there is that the people... You know, you've got one group of countries getting rid of gold, another group of countries uh, buying as much gold as possible. The one thing that you know is one of those groups is going to be absolutely correct. And it's a little bit hard to tell. But when you bring into the equation $250 trillion worth of debt, what that means is there's $250 trillion pieces of paper that says this is $1 of debt. So you can either hold gold in one hand and or pieces of paper say this is a dollar of debt the other hand. And I would challenge anybody to say they would rather hold the debt than than the gold, because at some point in time, uh, they're going to realize that piece of paper that says debt on it is actually a piece of used toilet paper. All you have to do is see what its value is. It's take a sniff. You'll know exactly what it's worth. So from a rational point of view, people should be holding something. And I'm not a gold bug per se, but they should be holding something of real measurable value that's going to be valuable no matter what happens to the financial system. We are going to see a crash in the world that's going to make uh, 1929 look like kids play. There, There is a global interconnectivity today that it's never existed before. And when the crash comes, it's going to affect every single person on earth. And you can either protect yourself and do what is rational, 
are, are you can believe all the bullshit that governments and banks and the media are passing out. You know, one of the most important lessons I learned uh, on my own lately, I guess uh, later than uh, than I would have liked, but as well recently reading your book, Nobody Knows Anything, is that most of the financial guru- gurus I've listened to are, you know, they don't know anything. And some, some of them are charlatans and, and that, you know, in many ways, nobody can predict the future as, as they say. And that you write that it's important to study the psychology and sentiment of the market and to be a contrarian uh, investor. And, you know, a few years ago, uh, I, I failed to pick up the signals and narrowly missed getting in on the crypto bubble at the beginning. And, you know, I, I missed that boat. But, you know, it would have been fun to write up. But at the moment, is there anything investment-wise which you are interested in, uh, w- whether they're at the top or, or at the bottom? What I try to do is take what it's a very complex area, and that is uh, investing in its profit, and, and make it as simple as possible. And, and it, it is as simple as buy what's cheap, and sell what's expensive. Now, in in the precious metals, uh, platinum is cheap, and rhodium and palladium are expensive. If you take the dollar out of the equation, then it becomes a simple uh, mathematical uh, figuring. Uh, look at what's gone down the most, and look at what's gone up the most, and sell what's gone up the most, and buy what's gone down the most. And and all all the other newsletter writers and promoters hate me for saying this. It it pretty much is that simple. Uh, I I stayed totally away from Bitcoin, and then in December 2017, I looked at it, and said, you know, this has gone totally curvilinear. This is absolutely nuts. You cannot put a value. On Bitcoin. And at the time, there were about, I think, 1,200 or 1,300 variations of of Bitcoin. Uh, Today, there's 2,500. Now, I would challenge anybody to tell me, you you really believe that 2,500 pseudo currencies are going to have some value? That couldn't possibly be true. So Bitcoin was the greatest financial collapse in history. It went from over 800 billion to under 150 billion there are still a lot of fools out there who want to believe that cryptocurrencies are going to survive. Uh, cryptocurrencies are electronic beanie babies. And, and beanie babies that you can buy for three bucks on eBay will have value long after cryptocurrencies have gone to Bitcoin heaven. And maybe if you could tell us a bit about your latest book on resources, you know, one thing that I find interesting, I'm here in, in Kazakhstan, which has the monopoly on uh, uranium, about 40%. And, you know, one thing that for me sounds interesting, I, I, I think there's a trend uh, of the building of nuclear power plants in the near future. We see in Saudi Arabia, they're building one. In China, they're talking about building nuclear power plants. And recently, Kazakhstan listed um, Kazatomprom, uh, on the international stock exchange, and so I mean, for me, for example, that that looks like uh, um, it, it makes sense to get some uranium. But can you tell us about resources in general, uh, as well as your book that just came out? 
Well, again, uh, it is as simple as buying them when they're cheap and selling them when they're expensive. I invested in a company in Arizona in 2001, and it seems to me that uranium was about eight or $12 a pound or something like that. And literally everybody hated uranium. And that's when you want to buy a commodity. Now, the only thing that makes anything go up in value is inflation. If we had real money that didn't change value 10,000 times a day, we would realize that. But uh, uranium was so hated that everybody sold it and all the companies producing it went out of business. And then it went from there to, I think, $145 or $147 or something absurd in 2007. Every commodity does that. Uh, Silver did it. Silver went from $4 in 2001 to $49 in change in April of 2011. And and everybody wants to analyze demand and everybody wants to look at the interest rates and everybody wants to look at Trump and everybody wants to look at the Fed. And then you've got some nutcases talking about conspiracies and it's all rubbish. Buy what's cheap and unpopular and sell what's expensive and popular. Everything goes up, everything goes down, and and that's it. Don't don't get married to a concept. There are people who think you should worship gold, and, and I'm not one of them. Gold just happens to make a handy form of money. But you could do the same thing with salt. You could do it with big rocks. You could do it with pieces of paper. The only thing you need to have money is somebody standing behind it who will make it good. But if if people will keep it simple and buy what's cheap and sell what's dear, they'll make a lot more money than by listening to gurus. And the interesting thing about literally all three of the last books that I've written uh, I, I think they're going to be just as popular 50 years from now as they are today because they contain universal truths. Yeah, I mean, really simple, uh, good, sound advice. It's helped me a lot. And is there any anything else that I haven't mentioned that you think is important? Any final thought for us on uh, war, empire, the economy? You said this year... Uh, is not looking good? Uh, There's no such thing as a good war or a bad peace. And I believe this is the year of the big reset. I I think I, I see things, forces in play right now that there's going to be lots of surprises this year. And many of them are going to be negative. And anything that we haven't covered this time, we can cover in an, in another interview. All right. It was great uh, having you on as a guest for the first time, Mr. Moriarty. I've already read three of your books. I recommend listeners go buy them and as well visit your websites, 321gold.com and your newer website, 321energy.com. Thanks for the interview. Okay. Very good. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. 
I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.